This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. to Weird Distractions Podcast, a podcast where we chat true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal story, folklore, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know the drill. This is episode 68. Holy crap. <laughs> we're getting there. Mm-hmm. I'm Alex. And Christy. And this week we are back talking true crime and a little bit of a trigger warning. This one's sad. Like all of the true crime cases we cover, this one... This one was hard to write, but before we dive in to this week's distraction, this week's case, Christy, what is your need for a distraction? Uh, my need for a distraction go alongs with the rest of this weekend. This is distracting me from work. Ah, we yes. went shopping. That was we a did. nice distraction. Yeah, we did, yes. I have days off. Those Ooh. are nice distractions. So mm-hmm. just getting scooped in there with all of my goodness I got going on this weekend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So essentially, things are going well on your end. Yeah. Yeah. My end... Not so much. Not so much. Work really fucking sucks. <laughs> so, uh, we're down as staff on my team. As always. As always. My clients aren't doing well. As always. As always. So, I'm ready to talk about literally anything else other than that. Mm-hmm. So, without further ado, this week's distraction takes us to our own backyard of Canada. As I promised our during our last true crime episode that I would try and find a Canadian Indigenous case to cover. And I stood true to my promise and boy was it so, so fucking sad. This is a hard case. Hmm. This week's case is the unsolved and mysterious death of Deborah Ann Sloss. So Deborah, mostly referred to and henceforth what I'm going to refer to as Debbie, was born as a Taurus on May 3rd, 1955 in Espanola, Ontario, Canada, to parents Shirley and Albert Sloss. Espanola is a town in Northern Ontario with a 2016 population of almost 5,000. So... Needless to say, she's a little bumping. She, she's a little bumping. She's not like a big old city, but she's there. We see her. She's we, like a Hanover. <laughs> yeah, she's like our hometown. Yeah. Just hopefully not as much meth. Anyways, it is in the Sudbury district and is over four hours northwest of Toronto. Debbie was reportedly born part of the Ojibwe tribe, but had a Mi'kmaq, Lakota, and French heritage. After Debbie was born, her parents, her older brother John and older sister Mary Lou, had moved to Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, aka one of my least favorite places in the province. I hate it. I'm sorry if you're listening from Sault Ste. Marie. I'm sorry if you like Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. It is my least favorite place in this godforsaken province. But we're not here to bash Sault Ste. Marie. That's on next week's episode. Anyways, based on what I read from the Native Women's Association of Canada website, Mary Lou and Debbie were very close, often being dressed alike by Shirley and spending a lot of time in their early years together. So they're sisters, they're close. They spend a lot of quality time together. Uh, Mary Lou even referred to her sister as acting very much like her zodiac sign as a Taurus, being very stubborn, kind of 
rule-breaking. I guess Debbie as a child, like a very small child in the first grade, would have her hand slapped by rulers by the nuns because that was a thing way back when. Debbie was also referred to as a cup thrower. Apparently she would toss a cup during arguments with her siblings to try and get her point across, both figuratively and literally. Mary Lou was quoted saying, Debbie was just Debbie. She was stubborn and wouldn't walk in the line that they tell you to walk in. Spending most of her early childhood 70 kilometers north of Sault Ste. Marie in the Bachawana Bay area, Debbie grew to become an active member in her community. She reportedly helped with bingo events, dances, potluck dinners, and bonfires at the beach. Gotcha. When Debbie was a teenager, she and her family, now seven, several members in total, moved to Toronto. Once again, one of my other least favorite places in Ontario. Bad choice. Where it seemed as though she and Mary Lou would take on more responsibilities for her family. Debbie and Mary Lou would take turns making meals, doing dishes, among other house cleaning duties to keep things afloat. Uh, this was because Shirley, unfortunately, was fairly ill. Mm -hmm. So by the age of 14, Debbie got her first job as a waitress at a local restaurant called Ted's located on Old Kingston Road in the Scarborough area of the GTA, aka the Greater Toronto Area, because essentially it's its own province. It was also around this time in Debbie's life where she found a passion in art and science, enrolling in a team at high school, and apparently she and Mary Lou had saved money so they could decorate their own bedroom. They were really into like interior design, like artsy fartsy kind of stuff. Mm. You know, she she had her interest. She was a blossoming teenager, as we <laughs> once were, I don't know. <laughs> Back in the day. Back in the day. So at 17, Debbie began dating a man named Len, who worked at a gas station across the street from her home, according to the Native Women's Association of Canada website. Debbie went on to graduate from high school, later earning a certification in bookkeeping, and a year later at age 18, her and Len got married and gave birth to their first child, Laura. Len, Debbie, and Laura moved out of Toronto and eventually settled in Goulas River, AKA back up north near Sault Ste. Marie. And actually, ironically enough, where my, both my uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law live. And so, you love it. <laughs> so yeah, when I was doing the research for this case, I was like, okay, uh-huh, mm, great, that area. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really pretty area. Don't, don't let my crass judgments fool you. It's beautiful. I just have my judgments because it's a long drive for where I live. It's <laughs> not driving that long. Exactly. After settling back up north from Toronto, Debbie gave birth to the couple's second child, Len Jr. Debbie was 21 years old at the time. Sometime in 1979, at only 24 years old, so three years after Len Jr. was born, uh, Debbie would reportedly be in a very serious car accident with Laura Len, Len Jr. and her sister Roxanne. According to the Native Women's Association of Canada website, Debbie reportedly was pinned under a truck by her arm and leg. And in a direct quote from Laura from a CBC article regarding the incident, quote, she had a pin in her shin and one in her shoulder. It really changed her life and probably scared her half to death. And she didn't know how to cope with that fear, didn't know how to cope with the trauma. As many of us know, motor vehicle accidents are traumatizing. Oh yeah. Extreme. If you're getting like a minor accident, you're like traumatized. Exactly. Based on what I could find, no one died in this accident. However, it would affect Debbie for years to come. After this accident, Laura, Debbie's daughter, 
suspected that Debbie may have developed post-traumatic stress disorder, also referred to as PTSD. For those unaware of what PTSD is, it is a psychiatric disorder that may occur in people who have experienced or witnessed a traumatic event, such as a natural disaster, a serious accident, a terrorist attack, physical, emotional, sexual assault, among other things. This thought was based off the notion that Debbie seemed to be different after the accident, perhaps more anxious and maybe even more fearful. Debbie reportedly found solace in coping with her anxieties and her fear after the accident, unfortunately with alcohol. Len and Debbie eventually divorced and Laura and Len Jr. stayed with their father. I'm not sure how this decision was broken down. However, based on what I read in the Native Women's Association of Canada website, Debbie seemed to take this situation and perhaps reflect. I say this because she bought a bus ticket to go across Canada to see her friends. Like she just got out of Ontario. She's like, I need time. Anytime, right? Which totally fair and understandable, right? Mm-hmm. Some, She's young, like she's under the age of 30. You know, she just went through a divorce, a major motor vehicle accident. There's so many things going on. Sometimes you just need to leave and mm-hmm. kind of figure out who you are as a person and what you need, right? When the trip was done, she found herself back in Toronto. At this point, it sounds as though her coping mechanisms surrounding alcohol turned more frequent and her family and close friends began becoming more and more concerned. When Debbie had moved back to Toronto, she seemed to get together with a new crowd of folks, folks who were struggling with their own addictions. Although Debbie felt as if she was kind of an outcast of her own family, she now found a new family and these new friends. However, I'm gonna kind of, based on what I've read, it kind of seems as if her addictions worsened with this new crowd. Mm, That influences. Yeah, so, We're going to jump to 1997, uh, which, spoiler alert, this would unfortunately be the last year of Debbie's life. At this point, she reportedly became optimistic around developing better coping strategies and wanted to stop using alcohol and other substances. She reportedly wanted to also get back together with her kids and Len. Like many, she wanted her family back. Debbie apparently connected with the Elizabeth Fry Society, which is a non-for-profit agency that offers counseling services, court diversion programs, residential and housing services, sex work transition programs, and more. Debbie participated in supports and was able to remain sober for five months, which that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Huge. Around this time, Debbie was also learning more about her history. Her sister, Mary Lou, and her brother-in-law, Dan, were teaching her words and their meanings in Ojibwe. Debbie also reportedly joined the two in listening to their elders about their tradition. So she's really, she's trying to figure out who she is. Mm-hmm. And you gotta give props to that, especially after all she's been through. Like, I know she went, at, we were talking about how she went out all across Canada. She was reflecting at that point, but I think... You just take pride in, like, your own culture and be like, okay, hey, like, I wanna figure out who I am. Yeah. Learn stuff. Well, and not only that, but I think when she first went out she was still drinking right this time around she was she wasn't she wasn't right she was sober she's figuring it out exactly it kind of really sounds as if she was on an upward recovery of her journey that is until july of 1997. laura had not heard from her mother in some time which was odd even though the two were physically separated laura was still up north Debbie was still in Toronto. It seemed as though the two had kind of like a routine schedule of calling each other every Sunday, check in, see how they're doing, this, that, and the other. But Debbie stopped answering the calls. Debbie's birthday came and went without any signs of her as well, which obviously raised some red flags. Laura, not knowing what to do, tried calling her mother's boyfriend, Milton. She probably asked if he had spoken to her or seen her. However, he reportedly refused to speak to her. 
What I'm gonna say next may sit wrong with some people. However, we have to remember the fact that until something like this happens to us, we don't necessarily know how we will respond. The rest of Debbie's family didn't report a missing persons case. Based on what I've read in the Native Women's Association of Canada website, the family didn't think much of it at the time. Or they might have, but maybe didn't know how to go about it or didn't know how police would receive it. Let's remember, it's 1997 in Toronto. Yes, doesn't really sound like a long time ago, but as we know, prejudice doesn't have a time frame. So an Indigenous family reporting their Indigenous member, family member being missing may not have been taken seriously as a white family, mm -hmm. right? I think we've talked about this numerous times. Unless you're you, anything about white, there's an issue with police things going more serious. Than exactly. I'm not sure if this would have been the scenario, but I can understand perhaps any kind of hesitancy someone who identifies as being non-white may have had when talking to police, and maybe why the police why the police weren't notified right away by her family. Um, I don't know if she was the type to necessarily like go kind of away for a little bit, and not talk to people, this, that, and the mm -hmm. other. But I think at this time, it didn't really seem like she was on. It seemed as if she was, like, kind of still connecting with people frequently, but you never know, right? Yeah. Like, people have their change. Exactly. People, people, yeah. However, on July 29th, the building's landlord had found Debbie's decomposed body in her apartment. Oh, dear. It was undetermined how long she had been in her apartment, and the exact date of passing was never determined. All we know is that Debbie was alone in her apartment, and she had only just turned 42. It's really young. A very young. If matters weren't already murky in terms of details, according to the Native Women's Association of Canada website, police had allegedly stopped working the case only two days after the body was found. What? Debbie's body remained at the morgue for almost a month before it was identified. Allegedly, police didn't contact Laura or any of Debbie's relatives. The family found out via word of mouth from a relative who was in Toronto who reportedly heard it on the streets. So they know who owns the apartment. Mm -hmm. uh, what? Because the body was so decomposed. You'd think you at least want to contact the owner, and if not the owner, someone who is then a part of that circle. You would think that. Fucking idiots. Yeah, I know. When the family didn't get in contact with the Toronto police, they reportedly told them that she had died of a drug overdose before stating, Debbie liked to party too much. That's a direct quote from the Toronto police, allegedly. According to a CBC article, police allegedly called her being Debbie, quote, an unfortunate author of her own misfortune. Okay, did they even do an autopsy to prove that she drug overdose? They don't fucking know that. Well, and we'll get to it. Oh, we will get to it. Obviously, this raised major... Rage. Bright... <laughs> well, yeah, major rage and also major bright red flags to the family. Oh, yeah. If you think the police's bedside manner was bad... It gets, gets worse. worse. Of course. I'm going to directly quote from the Native Women's Association of Canada website to elaborate on this further. Quote, the police report described Debbie as a, quote, Native Indian, not good, uh, and known alcoholic and crack addict. That was in their motherfucking reports. That's a problem. <laughs> yep. Uh, the suspicious thing is, is that even though police claim that Debbie died of an overdose, no specific cause of death was allegedly reported. If it was an yeah, if it was a, if it was an overdose, why were the drugs? Yeah, why wouldn't they have just said she died of an overdose on the autopsy report? Yeah, but, but they, they didn't. didn't. Exactly. 
According to the Native Women's Association of Canada website, which obviously is a fabulous resource, go check it out. The family also learned that there were no alcohol or drugs found in her system based off the coroner's report, in which I will note the coroner didn't even examine her stomach or liver contents. I'm not sure as to why. How could you even prove that if you didn't check those things? I know. I feel like that's part of the job. You know, you check each organ. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. I told you before we recorded this case was going to make you upset. It is. And I also warned all of you listening that this case was very sad and off. Like, I'm glad I know about it now, but I'm raging (laughs) inside because this is fucking bullshit how her death was handled. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, it only gets worse. Uh, So... Once again, I'm not sure why the coroner didn't do his job. Exactly. The family also felt that the reported state of Debbie's apartment that the police claimed to see didn't sound right. Police had allegedly claimed that the walls of Debbie's apartment were covered in feces. Debbie reportedly was a very clean person who probably didn't spread or would have spread fecal matter all over her walls. And if you did, I'm sure other people would have smelled that in the building. Well, that's that's the thing, right? It, whether it's the decomposing body or the poop, then someone exactly. smelled something. Another absolute left turn aspect of this situation came from the landlord, who reportedly gave away or threw out Debbie's belongings and rented the apartment out by the time her family were able to get access to it, which in one CBC article, it claimed that it was only within a week's time of when Debbie was found. That... Oh, ballsy. But, well, first of all, the balls, the cojones, the absolute... What, 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 where, where's your brain? Is it in your balls? Because you have to have the absolute audacity to do that kind of shit. And I'm sorry. I don't even... Like, what kind of company comes in there and can clean in a week the smell of a dead decomposing body, a, with, supposedly? With, with shit on the wall. With poop all over the wall and have it rented in a week. I'm exactly. sorry. This is why and I you give all of her shit away in a week. And exactly. no one even knows who body it is. No, and not only that, but I feel like for this kind of case, you want to have access to... Like, the police would want to have access to it with for, for a while, right? Yeah. As evidence. As evidence. Because who knows what... Like, I don't even know if any of the apartment was actually thoroughly investigated. Probably not. No. So... I can't imagine how confused and distraught, obviously, the family was about this because... Raging. Raging. I mean, the family had to find out via word of mouth. The Debbie was essentially slandered by police in their reports. They went to get her shit and it's gone. Being referred to as hateful terminology and Mm -hmm. being called an alcoholic and a crackhead. Like... What, in what grounds is that appropriate? Yes. Nothing. No, it's, it's never appropriate. No, absolutely not. But once again, police. So as mentioned, Debbie seemed to be doing better prior to her death. Yes, she was in early recovery, but all of this seemed so extreme to just be a quote-unquote overdose. Mm-hmm. The way police and even how the landlord responded and reportedly acted also just kind of stirs in more confusion to the situation. Mm-hmm. There also seemed to be inconsistency on top of inconsistency. For example, Debbie's birthday was listed wrong in the coroner investigation statement, which I feel like you have one job. First, you can't examine the body properly. Then you can't even do paperwork properly. Yeah. I'm sorry. The statement also said that Debbie was found lying on her back when she was discovered. However, the police reported that she was found lying on her left side. Apparently, there was also a check in the apartment that seemed to be reportedly seen in various places, based on which report you read. Wait, what was that? 
A check. Okay. So for some reason, they're like, oh, there's this check. It's in the kitchen. One reporter was like, oh, it's in the living room. It's like... Was there a check? Well, that's the thing. It's like, did the police call up the check? Because I, to be honest, I'm not going to put a pass them at this point. Doing some sketchy shit. Or like, was it the landlord? Mm-hmm. According to the Native Women's Association of Canada website, the police reported that the landlord claimed to see Debbie on July 23rd and noted that she looked, quote, unhealthy. Meanwhile, here's a twist. The coroner reported that she was well-nourished. Yeah, so how do you look like a bag of balls and die if you look fine? Yeah, when you're dead. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not... We're not morticians here. No. But we can speculate. We can speculate. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to get to the conclusion that something is a muck of this entire investigation. Mm-hmm. But the question still begs to be asked. What actually happened to Debbie. Laura, Debbie's daughter, seemed to have a red flag when recalling a conversation that she had with her mother's boyfriend, Milton, after Debbie's body was found. Milton and Debbie had been dating for about eight years. I don't know if it was on and off. I'm not sure, like, the intimate details of the relationship. Mm-hmm. He kind of, when I was reading the information, kind of came, like, sporadically near the end of the information. Okay. So I don't know if their relationship was positive. I don't know if it was negative. I'm not really sure. Um, but essentially Laura had asked Milton if if he had anything of Debbie's that perhaps Milton could give to Laura. She's like, you know, do you have like a sweater? Do you have this? Like, do you have anything of my mom's that I can have? Because once again, the landlord threw or sold all the shit she had. Yes. Right. In which he allegedly replied, I want nothing to do with it. So did he mean he wanted nothing to do with Debbie, the investigation, Unfortunately, Milton has since passed away some point after Debbie. I'm not sure exactly when. So there, we don't have an answer for that. But it's, it's just weird, it's, right? Yeah, like you're dating, but you want nothing to do with this. I know. And just uh, how he was before when Laura had called looking for her before Debbie was found saying like, you know, I, I, I don't know, like refusing to speak to her. Yeah. That's suspicious. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? I'm not, I'm not saying anything. I'm just putting information. We're calling out a there. murderer, but I'm just putting. Suspicious. I'm just putting. In, yeah, we're just putting information out there. You can be the judge of that information. To me, it seems like there may have been a disconnect from Milton after Debbie's death. I don't know if that's the factual case, but based off what I read, that's the impression I'm getting. So we have a bunch of red flags, a murky investigation, and still the question of what happened to Debbie Sloss. Mm-hmm. To put it bluntly, we don't know what happened. Well, that's annoying. I'm I hoping you tell me what happened. I know, I know, I know. I need answers. I know. Debbie's family reportedly suspects it was a murder, even though police seem to rule that out. Because once again, police did a very... Poor pistol job. Well, I was just going to say, they did such a good job, Christy. I mean, they solved it in two days. My face right now. Yeah. I can't roll my head, my eyes to the back <laughs> of my head. I can't roll my head around enough. <laughs> Hundreds. Yeah. I can't roll everything until you're waiting with disgust I'm in. Exactly. It seemed as though because Debbie had a history of substance use and was an indigenous woman, police basically wrote her off without giving them any, like, giving her any of their time. To- I, my, my biggest thing is I just can't believe that even though they're like, oh, we don't know who this is, you know who owns the apartment. You couldn't contact anybody. I know. Anybody. Well, and that's the thing, because usually when you apply for an, uh, an apartment, now mind you, this is 1997, but once again, I, I who knows? But usually when you apply to live in an apartment, you have to give an emergency contact. Usually. Which probably would have been her daughter. Like, I would have, I would assume it would have been Laura or Len or Len Jr. It would have been someone. You need an emergency contact. You would possibly need a guarantor. You would yep. need references. Something. Yep. You would need something. And the fact that 
her family didn't know until like almost a month after yeah disgust that's horrifying that's traumatizing like my heart literally goes out to these people because i couldn't imagine you know one day waking up not being able to con like get in contact with my mom and then like oh oh by the way you're like i'm so sorry your mom died like you're like what yeah exactly while walking the streets of toronto like the least favorable place in this world to hear that information i mean nowhere is good to hear that information but i'm just yeah yes so dan debbie's brother-in-law claimed that he thought debbie's case would never be thoroughly investigated by police for three reasons one she was indigenous two she was a woman and three she was described as an alcoholic so once again we have prejudice out the hoo-ha because of all these factors she automatically was written off automatically was written off even though she was sober during the last months of her life who she was as a being was being used against her in what would have been a proper, fair, hard-worked investigation. Because let's be real here, if she was white, if she was... Of any money. Of any money. Mm -hmm. If she had no history of addictions or mental health disorders, Mm -hmm. that case would have been solved so fucking fast. But the fact that she wasn't white, she had identified with struggling with a substance use, and she was a woman, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like... She automatically had a target on her back. To me, it's just a good old reminder that, hey, Canada, we have our own prejudices too, unfortunately, and it's quite blatant in these cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Mm-hmm. Hence why I wanted to cover this case, just as a reminder, because some people seem to think that Canada is all rainbows and maple syrup, and it's fucking not. Do you not watch the news, people? You should watch the news. You should probably watch the news. So it's been about 24 years since Debbie was found in her apartment, and unfortunately her case has yet to be reopened. Mm, lovely. I don't have any specific theories or suspects that we could deep dive down. Um, I'm not going to speculate wildly as to different possibilities, because I feel like we could go on and on, and I I don't want it to be, oh, let's like create some conspiracy no, theories. No, like, that's not what this, the point of this is. No. Um, what I will say is this. This case needs to be reopened with fresh, new, non-prejudiced eyes. Police need more education around anti-racism and anti-prejudice training. Police also need more access to addictions and mental health training. Mm -hmm. Debbie, like so many others who have similar stories, need more justice and recognition. Because we're all human, we should all have the same rights across the board. Mm -hmm. Once again, uh, we're here to try and educate folks. We you know uh it's obviously when we first started the podcast we were just like oh yeah we're gonna talk about true crime and then i think as we've gotten older and wiser in our podcasting years year (laughs) the last year we've recognized that obviously we have a little little mic in front of us we have a bit of a platform we need to talk about cases that you know aren't ted bundy or jeffrey dahmer or because we hate them fucking zodiac killer Although that one is unsolved and that should also be solved. But regardless, we should talk about the smaller cases that maybe people aren't focusing on because if we talk about them, the more people will become educated about them. They'll stay in their mind. They'll they'll recall, you know, different points of that and the other. And mm-hmm. maybe they'll talk about it with their cousin from Toronto. And maybe they'll know something. Mm-hmm. We're not here to be investigative journalists. We're not here to solve cases, this, that, and the other. But I think talking about something is a good way to become educated about something and to who knows maybe get something rolling get the Mm -hmm. ball rolling get something happening Mm -hmm. because clearly this investigation was so botched that to me it just seems unfair that it hasn't been reopened Mm -hmm. 
Like it had nothing's happened. It's been standstill. It's been closed since 1997. Yeah, and it's not really closed because there was no official like ending to that. Exactly. Some may question why cover a case that hasn't been solved. For lots of reasons. For lots of reasons. I think it boils down to the notion that obviously the more it is discussed, perhaps someone will come forward who knows something. Not only that, but we, meaning true crime podcasters, we need to talk about this kind of stuff more, mm-hmm. as I mentioned. Um, yes, you know, victims of bigger cases such as Jeffrey Dahmer or Ten Bundy, like, yes, they're still important to talk about, but we also need to talk about the cases that aren't solved, mm-hmm. where the victims are known or aren't known. And no one's been brought to justice as of yet. I can't tell you with certainty how Debbie died or other aspects outside of what has already been stated. What I can say is the fact that her death was seemingly thrown to the wind based on who she was as a person is absolutely disgusting and disgraceful. Regardless of any identifying factors, I personally believe that each case should be examined properly with the same consistent regard as the next. I'm getting sweaty because I'm getting really mad right now. Getting hated. I've read that Laura is still advocating for justice regarding her mother, and I honestly wish the family well on their journey to hopefully justice. If you or anyone has any information regarding the death of Debbie, you can send an email to missingandmurderedindigenouswomen at mmiw at cbc.ca. I know usually I say call your local police department, this, that, and the other, but the local police department is the Toronto police in this situation, and I... You should actually call an esta- like a establishment or like a corporation that will actually do something with it. Well, do something with it and do it with non-prejudice, because, mm-hmm. I mean, yes, they probably have new police on the force since 1997. I would fucking hope so, but mm-hmm. regardless, that is the unfortunate, uh, unsolved and mysterious death of Debbie Ann Sloss. Here is a shout out to my resources. Thank you so kindly to the Native Women's Association of Canada, which you can check out at nwac.ca, the horoscope.co website, because I needed to look more about a tourist. Because usually we don't cover people that are tourists. Like, I feel like Debbie's our first tourist. So. It's usually like Pisces, Virgo, Scorpio. Exactly. CBC article, Questions Linger Two Decades After Death of Batchewana First Nation Woman by Olivia Stefan Ovik. October 23rd, 2017. CBC article, Unresolved Deborah Ann Sloss by Martha Terrain, October 7th, 2016. And finally, American Psychiatric Association for the Definition of Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. Christy, can you tell these fine people where they can find us, what platforms we are on, how they can support the show, all that good, good juicy weird stuff? Yes, all the goods. Uh, where you guys can find us, we are on Apple Podcasts. If you listen on Apple, please consider leaving us a rating. It gives us a, a small review, some stars. Just gives us up there a little bit more in some charts just to show that we're there. Yeah. Spotify, Google, Good Pods, and just pretty much any other platform you listen to podcasts on, you will find us if you search us. You can also support us for free by following us on TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Again, We're Distractions Podcast. Looking for more from us, consider joining one of our two tiers on Patreon. Uh, both tiers get monthly bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes footage, free stickers, and more. Some of our bonus episode topics have included the case of Oakland County Child Murders, uh, Ismo Uni, and more. Shout out to our current Patreons, Tom and Bailey. Thank you guys so much. We love you. Hope you're enjoying our extra content that everyone's missing out on. So that's yeah. why you should go try Patreon. All right, and I will say, if you are specifically here for our true crime episodes, which I feel like our true crime episodes do get more lessons... 
our Patreon episodes have literally only been true crime. Literally only been that. They've yeah. literally only been true crime episodes. So, for example, uh, this episode actually comes out with our monthly Patreon episode the same date. And I just talked about a sling of murders that happened in Toronto at Sick Kids Hospital. Well, not murders, but deaths. Mm -hmm. And it was also depressing. So our recording session today has been very, very sad. So if Full you of depression. Yeah. So if you want to support the show and hear more about that, check us out on Patreon. Yes. And uh, other ways you can get us is if you want to make a one-time pledge, you can find us on Buy Me a Coffee to help the show. Yeah. You can also support it by repping our merch. We are found on Redbubble. Ooh. And for both those, you can search again, just Weird Distractions Podcast. Lastly, again, we want to hear from you guys. As always, we always tell you we're doing a bi-monthly series called Listener Distractions. We want to weird your weird encounters of paranormal, true crime, conspiracy, and pretty much anything. If you want to share with us, we think it's, we all will, probably will think it's legit. So yeah. we'll share it with you. So send in your weird tales or small or large to weird distractions podcast at outlook.com. As I said, they're going to be bi-monthly, the 13th of every month. Hopefully we can get enough to keep this rolling. So please send them in. And when she says, we're hoping, I'm... I'm Alex here is going to beg and plead with you because I loved doing our first listener distractions episode. It was so much fun to read. Mm -hmm. We love hearing from you guys. So it's like a fresh take because you're reading someone's story that you haven't read before. Yes. They get like true reaction to it versus like notes. Like, you know about the notes. I don't know about the notes, but it's like, it just gives more content. Also, I apologize. I said, guys, I mean, everybody. So I'm not being, I, I, we want to hear from more than just the males. So email us, hit us up. Let us know. Do you have a cousin that's like really into a pyramid scheme? Like that's bordering a cult? We want to hear about it. Did you stay a night at some haunted hotspot location and have evidence that you want to share with us or just tell us about it? Let us know. Did a family member come in contact with a notorious serial killer? Let us know. We want to hear from you. We want to know exactly what you have encountered that was weird. Because in case you've missed it, we're weird. We're not always. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> and if you need a distraction, we got you. Bye. Bye.